Well, I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to the second book of the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. There's a universal question that I know that you will be very familiar with. It's a question that has reverberated all around the world for literally thousands of years. This is a question that when asked has the power to make a grown man shudder. This is a question that when asked will make the most educated man or woman begin to sweat. It is a question that makes people nervous and it has for thousands of years. This is a question that does not initially appear to have an answer. The question that is posed is framed like this. See if you are familiar with it. Where does God come from? How many of you have ever been asked that question? Where does God come from? Uh, There have to be more of you. Let me ask this. How many of you have asked the question, where does God come from? Good. And you know what? Most of the children are raising their hands and the honest adults are raising their hands as well. I want to give dads a helpful hint on how to answer this question. Because again, it's it's a question that can make uh, uh, just about anyone sweat and Get nervous when a, a four-year-old asks him, where does dad come from? Here's how you might respond. Ask your mother. <laughs> Ask your mother. Well, based on the hands that have arisen this morning, children, of course, are not the only ones who pose this very thorny question. Moses himself, the great man of God, And the pages of the Old Testament came face to face with such a matter in Exodus chapter 3. I want to remind you that Moses was a shepherd who we find in Exodus 3 was simply minding his own business. He was hanging out in the region of Horeb, a place that the scripture refers to as the mountain of God. And that day at Horeb, as Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock, he was confronted by... The angel of the Lord. And I want to read that uh, with you. I want to have you stand out of respect for the authority of God's word as we begin in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." 
Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, I want you to pay careful attention to verse 14. What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now move down to verse 15. In verse 15, the name becomes in the Hebrew... Yahweh, or the Lord. Keep in mind that Yahweh was the Old Testament name that is introduced here for God, whom the Hebrew scribes were utterly afraid to utter. It may even surprise you that I have personal friends in ministry who, along with the Hebrew scribes, to this day refuse to utter the name Yahweh or the Lord. John Frame says it this way. So the name of God, the name by which he wants his people especially to remember him forever is Yahweh or the Lord. Notice, as you look at the pages of Scripture in verse 15, you will see the word Lord is capitalized throughout. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And pay close attention when you read now in the Old Testament Scriptures that when you find that word Lord translated that way, you are reading the name Translated from the Hebrew word Yahweh. You remember well the Shema that we have referred to in previous messages. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Frame continues. He says this is a confession of lordship. That Yahweh, the Lord, is the one and only true God. And that therefore, he deserves all our love and allegiance. That is to say, the Lord, who we have discovered, is sovereign over all things. He has the right to issue forth commands. That Yahweh has the right to tell his creatures what is true, what is right, what is just, what is noble. Yahweh has the ability, has the authority to tell us how we should run our lives. And therefore, we are obligated to obey. Now, John Frame continues his argument. He concludes by saying, if the Shema that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. If the Shema summarizes in a way a message of the Old Testament by teaching that Yahweh is the Lord, so the confession, Jesus is Lord, that emerges in the pages of the New Testament, therefore summarize the New Testament. Jesus who is God in the flesh, is Lord. Now, as interesting as this is, and I find it absolutely fascinating, and I hope you do as well, but as interesting as this is, it still doesn't answer the question that you receive from your four-year-old. It still doesn't answer the question that is on your mind as a 64-year-old. Where does God 
come from? And if you want to have a a little bit of fun with me this morning, I, I would encourage you to take out a piece of paper and write the answer to that question down. Don't put it on your wife, gentlemen, as I encouraged you to do a few moments ago. But can you, can you determine in, in your finite mind this morning where God comes from? That if a, a child or a friend at your place of business asked you, where does God come from, that you would have an answer. This morning, by the time we are through... My goal is that each of you will have not only an answer for a four-year-old, you will have an answer for your associate at work. You will have an answer for anyone who asks you, where does God come from? Because, are you ready? There is an answer. And there is only one correct answer. Well, the title of the message this morning is The Self-Existence of God. And I want to offer a, a very basic roadmap for you, a roadmap that will give you the ability to walk through this message together. I want to give the roadmap to you in advance, and then we will walk through these three points together. First, I want to provide a definition, a definition for the self-existence of God. We'll take several minutes and walk through the definition of the self-existence of God. Then I want to offer a little bit more. I want to give you a brief description, a brief description of the self-existence of God. And then we will conclude our time together by going to the deep end of the pool once again. And I want to offer you a deeper understanding of, Of this self-existent God. And here is my goal as your pastor today. I trust that as we study God's self-existence. Something that I believe has been neglected for years in the church. It 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 is something that many of you probably are unfamiliar with today. That by the time we walk out of this facility today. That you will have a, a greater understanding of God. That you will have a greater knowledge of God. And whenever you grow in your understanding and your knowledge of God, something by definition follows. Your worship is enhanced. As we grow deeper in our understanding of the self-existence of God, by definition, we will grow in our love and adoration and worship of God Almighty. And so let's begin with this This premise that God is self-existent. As I promised, let me begin by pointing your way to a definition. I want to give a definition of the self-existence of God. And I'm going to take a bit of a risk on this one. I want to give you a word that comes from a Latin word. And the word is this. My suspicion is this will be a brand new word. And I have to tell you up front, and Doreen knows this about me, this is one of my favorite words. Words. Are you ready? It's the word aseity. Aseity. Just for fun. Raise your hand if you have never heard that word in your whole life. Those of you not raising your hands, I'm going to have you come up here and give the definition. Okay, lots of you. Aseity. The word aseity comes from a Latin word, as I mentioned, and it means this it means from or by himself. Pretty simple. Aseity means from or by himself. And so the answer to the question that you're ready to discover is this. Where does God come from? The answer is he finds his existence in himself. You say that doesn't help very much. He finds his existence in himself. And I would submit this to you. If the answer to that penetrating question, where does God come from? If the answer does not satisfy you or if the answer perplexes you or the answer confuses you, the reason is this. God is the only one who can have an answer like that. Everything else we will see is derived Everything that you can think of in this universe comes from something else. Spence, where do you come from? God. You come from God. 
Can anyone jump in and say there's someone else that was real important in bringing Spence into this world? Aha! So you come from mom and dad. So we are derived. We are derived. God is not derived. God does not have a mom and dad. God does not have parents. Why? He is a God of aseity. Are you with me? I think you are. He finds his existence in himself. Now, the definition of aseity now helps us to identify some essential qualities that are a part of God's nature. Because God finds his existence in himself, we can say that he is self-existent, he is self-sufficient, he is self-contained, he is utterly independent, and he is free. Why? Because he finds his existence in himself. Each of these terms that I have just noted... Self-existent, self-sufficient, self-contained, independence, or free are all synonymous with the attribute of a seity. That is to say, God is the only self-existent, self-sufficient, self-contained, independent being in the whole universe. God finds his existence in himself. I remember when I would share this with my children. My children would ask, Dad, where does God come from? And I tried the ask your mother trick. It just didn't work, you know. It, <laughs> and then Jereen's like, why would you do that? So I'd say, okay, I'm, I'm tired of playing around. Here's the answer to the question. He finds his existence in himself. I was pretty proud of myself. I remember Nathan. He said to me, I don't get it. And my response was, I don't get it either. Why? Because I'm derived. I come from my mom and my dad. And my mom and my dad come from their mom and dad ad infinitum, ad nauseum, right? And so we are each derived. And so at this point, remember that God finds his existence in himself. And as a result, he is completely independent of creation. That is something that the contemporary church is largely forgetting. In an attempt to make sure that that some pastors and some theologians are helping us to understand that God is with us and for us and loves us, which is all true, they have neglected this attribute, an attribute that we need to be careful not to neglect. Now, as we pose the question, where did God come from? I want to go a little bit further by, by expanding on this definition. I want to introduce you to one other, what some would refer to as a universal principle of knowledge. Now, if I were to ask you, let me just ask the junior hires and high school students. If your teacher were to, were to say, class, I want to teach you today a universal principle of knowledge. How many of you would be interested in learning that? It's something that just, if you're anyone, you embrace it. Katie, what's 2 plus 2? That is a universal principle of knowledge. We have to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. For me, that's about all I got in math. I got that, but not much else, right? I'm not sensing any... You guys want to hear the universal principle of knowledge? Because if you do, your moms and dads will. I don't see any heads... Bree, are you with me? Grace, okay, universal principle of knowledge. Here it is. The universal principle of knowledge that will help us to understand a seity is called the law of causation. Would you write that down? The law of causation. Here is what it means. This, by the way, universal principle of knowledge must be believed by any, by any person, theist or atheist. Pagan or Christian, philosopher or non-philosopher, botanist, marine biologist, janitor, school teacher, principal, police officer, people of God. Here's what the law of causality teaches. And we already know the law, and it is this. Every effect, help me, 
has a cause. Every effect has a cause. Moms and dads, if your son or daughter is a brand new driver, and they come home this next weekend, and the front headlight is shattered, and, oh, I see, that must have happened to a few of you. And you ask your son or daughter, honey, what happened to the headlight? I don't know. Why is it that almost every high school student answers like that? I don't know. Here's the follow-up. It just happened. Now, moms and dads are pretty smart, aren't they? They know about the law of causality, that every effect, what's the effect here? The broken headlight has a cause. And we can just imagine what the causes are. It could be a multitude of things. It could be a gang member came in the parking lot and smashed it in. It could be you were driving along and and you hit a big bird. It could be uh, someone was angry with you and they poked a hole in that headlight. But the fact is, it didn't happen by accident. It may have been an accident, but something Something broke the headlight. Every effect has a cause. Another example. You are, you, you are, girls, you are sitting in the park with your boyfriend, holding hands. It's a beautiful day outside in Whatcom County, and you're sitting there, and boop, a pine cone hits you on the head. You say, what in the world happened? Your boyfriend says, that was just accidental. When your boyfriend says it's accidental, he's denying a universal principle of knowledge that every effect has a cause, right? So what could be some possible causes of that pine cone falling? It could be that someone is playing a trick on you. Someone had climbed up into the tree that was over your head and they shook that tree and caused a pine cone, caused a pine cone, the law of causality, to fall on your head. It might have been... The wind that is so horrible in Whatcom County blew that pine cone and it landed on the crown of your head. It might be that someone let his or her pet monkey out that day. And the monkey was up shaking the tree. But we know one thing. It didn't happen by accident. Why? Because every effect has a cause. Now, if we think about God... Can you hear what the skeptic will say at this point? If you're thinking deeply about this, you can, you can just imagine what the atheist or the agnostic or the skeptic says about the law of causality. They will say something like this, and some of you have already posed this in your own mind. Not to be a skeptic, but you're wondering, how does it work out? If every effect has a cause, then where did God come from. I want you to remember this crucial distinction. And this is something that has helped me so much, and I pray it will be an encouragement for you as well. The law of causality does not require that everything has a cause. Now, that, that we're at the deep end of the pool, right? But this is simple. A seven-year-old can get this. The law of causality does not suggest that everything has a cause. It only says every effect has a cause. Here's the bottom line. An eternal object, an eternal being, capital B, need not have a cause. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. What we must strive to do then is find something that is not an effect, something that has the power of being within itself, something that has existed from all eternity. Do we know anyone that has existed from all eternity? Only one, the triune God of the universe. So I want to show you a description of, of God, a, a description of someone who has the power of being within himself. I want to show you a description of this self-existent God. J.I. Packer says it like this. He, speaking of God, is the reality behind all reality. Is that deep? 
God is the reality behind all reality, the underlying cause of all causes and all events. The name proclaimed him as self-existent, sovereign, and wholly free from constraint by or dependence on anything outside himself. I want to offer you four basic descriptions of this self-existent God. And I want to do so by having you turn to Acts chapter 17. And I'm sure you've been to Acts chapter 17 many, many times. Of course, this is the section of Scripture where Paul the Apostle is addressing the, the philosophers at the Areopagus. And he says something very interesting in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. Read it with me. The God who made the world. And we need to stop there and confess with Paul that God is the creator of all things. Remember who Paul is communicating this to. He is not communicating that God is the creator to his uh, seventh grade Sunday school class who will be sympathetic to the message. He is communicating this to a group of pagan philosophers. The God who made the world or who created the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. There is a ton that Paul sets on the table for these pagan philosophers. The first is this, God is in need of what? Nothing. That's a lesson we can take with us today. God has no needs. There is a fairly popular notion that is spread all around the world, and I believe especially in American Sunday school classes, that God created the world, and he looked down on this beautiful and good planet that he made, along with all the other planets and stars, and he said to himself, I am so lonely I think I'll create Adam and Eve so I have someone to talk to. And if I were to ask you to raise your hands, I would, I would believe, I would believe it if many of you raised your hands and said, I learned that in Sunday school. And so let me encourage you to, to wash that out of your mind and out of your heart because we see from Acts 17, God is in need of nothing. Please note that if you learned as a Sunday school child or as an adult that God created creatures because he was lonely, that this strikes at the very core of his aseity. For if he truly created out of loneliness, that would demonstrate a need in God, a relational need in God. Number two. Another description of this self-existent God. Notice from Acts 17, 24 and 25 that God is not in any way dependent upon the creatures for his existence. In short, God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. Number three, we see from these verses that God is not only independent in himself, but we also learn that this self-existent God causes everything to depend on him. He causes everything to depend on him. And when I was a youth pastor, I used to love to do this exercise. I won't make you do it. I'll tell you about it. I, I used to love to have students take a huge breath. And I said, just hold it. And then I'd walk around the platform and just enjoy myself, drink a big sip of coffee, eat part of a candy bar. And these kids would be turning blue, like, oh, let us breathe. I'd say, okay, let the breath out. I say, young people, do you realize that that breath you took was from Almighty God? God gave that breath. God has the ability to take that breath away. He is absolutely self-sufficient. He is in no way dependent upon us for his existence. And he causes us to depend on him. Finally, I want you to see that in all of God's independence, 
which I hope is a a startling reality to you, that in all of his independence and self-sufficiency, that he chooses to cast his affection on you. Here is a God who has no needs. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us for him to exist. In fact, we depend on everything from God, but he chooses in all of his self-sufficiency to delight in you and I, which brings him great joy. Would you turn with me to the book of Isaiah? And if this is a new scripture for you, I, I trust that this will literally blow you away. Isaiah chapter 62 And I want to read the context, really, to get to verse 5, to have you see the context and then see this self-sufficient, independent, totally free God to see how he views his people. Look with me, beginning in verse 4, Isaiah 62. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married for the Lord Yahweh delights in you and your land shall be married. Now notice in verse five, remember who we're talking about here. The, the God who is the God of a seity. He finds his existence in himself. He is utterly self-sufficient. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He has no needs for as a young man marries a young woman. So shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your self-sufficient, independent God rejoice over you. Can you believe it? God is utterly self-sufficient, yet he says, I rejoice over this my people. Now I want to move quickly. And I want to show you a description of someone who has the power of being within himself. Of course, we know by now that is none other than our great God. I want to move on to a deeper understanding of this self-existent God. And as we look at a deeper understanding of the self-existent God, I want to add one more term that will be of help to you. That will be uh, an assistance to you, an encouragement to you. Remember that when we talk about the self-existent God, that he is utterly absolute. He is absolute. And so I want to look at this God who is self-existent, but who is also absolute. And have you look at three very important qualities. Qualities that will help to shore up your Christian worldview. These are qualities that when people talk to you about God in the marketplace of ideas, you should be running this like a filter through everything they say and do. I'm not going to tell you the name of the book yet. My wife and my mom and dad who are here, they know the book that I'm reading. It is a book that is likely to uh, hit very hard. This is a book that already has over 80 reviews, I believe, most of them positive on Amazon. It's written by a man who calls himself a Christian. This is a book that we need to run these three points through to see whether or not he's on track. And let me just tell you, he's not. Here are the three points. Number one, this self-existent absolute God is transcendent. He is transcendent. You say, what does that mean? Whenever I say the word transcendent, I I tend to do this with my hands, like this. And I would have you do the same. When you think of transcendence, would you imagine this, that God is transcendent. It means he is over and above the scope of his creation. He is over and above the scope of his creation. He is not only over and above the scope of his creation, he is distinct from his creation. He is not a part of his creation. He is distinct from it. He is utterly independent. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says it like this. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. 
That is the attribute of transcendence, and we will look more at that in a future study. In Isaiah 40.10, we read, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Transcendence. His arm rules for him. Transcendence. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Psalm 113, 4 and 5. The Lord is, you can, just, you can just smell the transcendence in this verse. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. Who is like our Lord, our God, who is seated on high? So when we think about the self-existent absolute God, remember, he is utterly transcendent. He is the king. He is enthroned. He is absolute. He is sovereign. He is over and above all of his creatures and his creation. Number two, God is not only transcendent, he is preeminent. He is preeminent. That is to say, he surpasses everything and everyone else. There is no one who has more power, who has more sovereignty than the almighty God. He is the, you could put it this way. This is the way I would explain it to children. He is the greatest being in all the universe. No one compares to our preeminent God. Jonathan Edwards understood this. He said this, Christ, and you'll remember that Christ is fully God and fully man. Christ is the creator and great possessor of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign Lord of all. He rules over the whole universe and does whatever pleases him. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect. What none can circumvent. His power is infinite and none can resist him. His riches are immense and inexhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awesome. You see, Edwards understood that God is not only transcendent, but he is all-surpassing. He is utterly preeminent. Isaiah 40, verses 25 and following say it like this. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. Now, why would we lift up our eyes? We would lift up our eyes in the direction of the transcendent one. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God. That's a question. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You know what would happen if God fell asleep at the wheel? I would collapse. If God fell asleep at the wheel, we would all be dead. Every last one of us. Every molecule would come apart at the seams. The, the planets in the cosmos would crash into each other. Why? Because without God, there is no order. There is no design in the universe. Colossians 1.18 says that he is the head of the body, the church. That is Jesus. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And so I'd have you see this morning that our God is not only transcendent, that he is preeminent. And the preeminent God, Colossians tells us, holds all things together. For by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him he holds all things together. So as we think about the self-existent God who is absolute, we recall he is transcendent. He is preeminent. There's one final quality. We see that our God has supreme authority over all things and over all peoples. Nothing rivals the supreme authority of our God. He is not only absolute and preeminent, he has and possesses absolute authority over all things. 
A.W. Pink wrote a book entitled The Sovereignty of God. It's a book that I read almost 25 years ago. Honestly, I can't remember how many times I've read it since. I would encourage you to read it. It is a book that will teach you really one lesson. And then you'll learn a multitude of other lessons. You will learn that God is God and you are not. God is God and I am not. Here's what Pink says. Because God is God, he does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. His great concern is the accomplishment of his own pleasure and the promotion of his own glory, that he is the supreme being and therefore the sovereign of the universe. And so I would continue to to beg you to remember and to embrace the biblical reality that we will continue to learn more about in this study over the next several months, that God is utterly sovereign. Here is the warning from A.W. Pink, and it's a stern warning. In a word, to deny the sovereignty of God is to enter upon a path which is follow, if followed, leads to its logical result. And that is to arrive at blank atheism. What's Pink saying? He says, if you deny that God is sovereign over all things, you're an atheist. He continues. He says, when we say that God is sovereign, we affirm his right to govern the universe, which he has made for his own glory, just as he pleases. Sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. He is sovereign in all his attributes. He is sovereign in the exercise of his power. His power is exercised as he wills, when he wills, and where he wills. This morning, we have come face to face with the self-existent absolute God. The God who is utterly transcendent. The God who is utterly preeminent and the God who has absolute sovereignty over all things and all people. Indeed, he is absolute. As we close, I want to give you one more very important truth about this sovereign, absolute God. Always remember this. Our God, who is absolute, is also personal personal. Did you know that you can ask any Muslim, any Muslim, do you worship an absolute God? Every Muslim will tell you, yes, that Allah is absolute. But if you do a follow-up question and ask that Muslim, and indeed any Muslim, is your God Allah personal? Every Muslim will respond negatively. Because Allah, as admitted by every Muslim that has ever lived, is not personal. Therefore, he is not God. He is a false God. And so we, we remember that when we, when we glory in the fact that our God is absolute, we also glory in the fact that he is personal, that he is personal. He is the God who Isaiah 40 tells us tends his flock like a shepherd. He is the God who will gather the lambs in his arms. He is the God who will carry each of his lambs in his bosom and gently lead those with young it really leads us to this point. It's what I like to call a posture of humility. Because here we are, the people of God, before the self-existent, absolute, and personal God. As we conclude, I want you to think of your status before this self-existent God. You see, to consider yourself in a biblical frame of reference as a creature as one who is created, will place you in the exact position you need to be. And the position where we need to be before the self-existent, absolute, personal God is always in a position or posture of humility. 
you will recognize that God is God and I am not. And so here are three positions that we find ourselves in in this position of humility. Number one, I've already mentioned we are derived. We are derived. Our origin is found in someone else. And you can apply this to anything in the cosmos. Anything. And even try to make it tricky. Say, well, pastor, what about a rock? A rock doesn't have a mom and a dad. You would be correct. A rock doesn't have a mom and a dad. A rock does, however, have a creator. That rock, much to the chagrin of Dr. Dawkins and the late Chris Hitchens and Sam Harris, the great horseman of atheism, much to their chagrin, every rock has a creator. Every rock is derived as we are derived. Number two, I want you to see that in this position of humility, that we are utterly dependent. We depend upon God for everything. Our breath, our life, our, 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 the way we earn a living, our food, our sustenance, our home, our vehicles, everything in life. We are utterly dependent on God. And then I want you to remember also that we, in this position or posture of humility, that we are depraved. We are not only derived and dependent, but we are depraved. We are sinners by nature and choice. And the amazing thing I conclude with this morning is that the the God who has no beginning and and no end, the God who is utterly self-sufficient and self-existent and utterly independent, sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price of all your sin on Calvary's cross. This absolute God who has no needs whatsoever sent Jesus to be the final payment for your sin on the cross. As I shared with Doreen last night, I wanted to share her the, the nugget I wanted to leave each of you with today. And the nugget is this. Because we have, we have been swimming in the deep end of the pool, have we not? Here's the nugget. The self-existent, absolute, personal God loves you. Think about that. I want you to imagine your favorite movie star or your favorite singer or your favorite athlete. If he or she called you today and said, Grace, I just wanted to let you know, I'm calling from uh, uh, Louisiana. I know you like my, my singing. I love you. Woo! Can you imagine it? Your favorite singer calls you on the phone and he or she loves you. Big deal, right? The self-existent, eternal, absolute, personal God loves you. Isaiah says he rejoices over you. I want you to honestly wrestle with the question, where do you stand with and before this self-existent God? Because I'm convinced that the self-existent God is not only great, he is not only great, he is good. And Edwards, again, understands it and has helped me so much to uncover this truth. He says this, And would you choose to have a friend not only who is great, but is good? In Christ, infinite greatness and infinite goodness meet together and receive luster and glory from one another. By choosing Christ for your friend and portion, you will obtain these two benefits. Christ will give himself to you with all those various excellencies that meet in him to your full and everlasting enjoyment. He will ever after treat you as his dear friend. And you shall long ere be where he is and shall behold his glory and dwell with him in most free and intimate communion and enjoyment forever and ever and ever. You and I, Christ followers with the self-existent, 
absolute, personal God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for who you are. We as uh, finite creatures uh, cannot unravel the deep mysteries of who you are. Indeed, we, we confess that we will continue to learn about you unto all eternity. But we thank, we thank you so much for what you have revealed to us in your word. It is very, very clearly revealed that you are self-existent. You are self-sufficient. You have no needs. And we are so blown away by the notion that you love us. You don't need us, but you choose to love us and rejoice over us. And I pray if there's anyone here today who has yet come to the place where they can say that I am a Christ follower, that they will recognize the supreme sacrifice you made when you sent your one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the final payment for their sin on Calvary's cross. If you're here today and you recognize that uh, you stand under the wrath of this self-existent God, would you cry out to him? Would you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation so that you would be forgiven of every sin you have ever committed and every sin that you will yet commit in the future? Know that you will stand as spotless, as forgiven, as free before the self-existent, almighty, absolute, and personal God. I thank you, God, for showering your mercy on us through your Son. We thank you, Holy Spirit, as we sang earlier, for applying the work of redemption from Calvary's cross to everyone who believes. I pray that we would be a community of believing people on this day, humbled in your presence. Amen. Well, I hope this morning that the, the reality of God's self-existence will open up new vistas of worship for you. Remember this as we close. God has commanded us to worship him, but he doesn't need our worship. When we do worship, he is delighted. It brings him great joy. I want to remind you also to greet uh, the Christiansons on the way out. Give them a, a strong right harm, right harmed. Don't do that. <laughs> right, right hand of fellowship. And uh, Kyle and Kathy, we love you guys. We're so glad that God brought your family to us and look forward to having you meet everyone after the service. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, uh, for this day. Thank you so much for the Christiansons for uh, bringing them uh, to this area, bringing them to this church. We commit them to you, and we are excited to see the gifts that you have given them by your Spirit to build up the body of Christ, to, uh, to be of encouragement to not only people here at Christ Fellowship, but people uh, here in our community and throughout Whatcom County. Use them for your purposes. I pray that you'd encourage uh, this, your people, on this day. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.